As you know, we're here to talk about uh, Specialist Factual, and we're going to hear from some of the most uh, important people in the business. Yeah, sure. What they commission, how they commission, and what kind of ideas and opportunities they're looking for next. Specialist Factual spans many subjects, of course, history, science, arts, natural history, religion. And there's a growing demand, it seems, for epic big stunt programming as channels look to create distinctive content and engage audiences and the world around them. Tom, if I could start with you. We talk a lot about the golden age of TV, but is it a golden age for Specialist Factual at the minute? It's a big question to start with. Um, I would say Specialist Factual is in pretty fine fettle, actually. I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that a couple of years ago, and I'm sure all of lots of the people here are programme makers and independent producers, it felt like drama was very, very dominant. There was a sense that the only way you could get huge ratings, the only way you could have a box set sensibility, which I'm sure is a phrase you're hearing over and over, came through drama. It certainly feels not particularly especially as factual, but I think across the piece in factual, there is a sense that factual can compete with drama and with entertainment in terms of both audiences and in terms of the sort of reputational dividend it gives back to a broadcaster. So I certainly feel like there's a sort of renewed confidence in factual after a couple of years of feeling slightly on the back foot, slightly is it working? I mean, I certainly think that, so for something like Planet Earth 2, which was our big natural history landmark last year, there had started to be, certainly within the BBC, a sense that the days of the figures you'd get for Planet Earth and Frozen Planet were a thing of the past, and that was okay, because audiences were changing and the way people consumed content were changing, and so people would watch it on iPlay and people would watch fragments of it digitally, and so it was fine that we weren't getting 10 million viewers, 11 million viewers. And I think in some ways, what Planet Earth 2 proves or, or shows, and I'd like to think it's not just a sort of last hurrah before it goes down again, is that if you get it right, there is an audience out there. And I feel really proud that, bake off aside, Planet Earth 2 was the BBC's highest rated programme last year. And that includes all of drama. And I think that's sort of game changing, not just for Specialist Factual, but in terms of the ambition of factual across the piece, that you are able to compete with dramas with huge actors, with huge international investment, with huge amounts of trailing behind it, and with huge amounts of hoopla behind them. I think it means that Specialist Factual, I think Planet Earth 2 is good for Specialist Factual, like not just at the BBC, but across the piece. John, have you found that at Channel 4? Uh, um, I guess last year, certainly, it's not just people talk about drama defining channels, but in fact, Channel 4, you know, Richard III and the 24-hour strands and Secret Life of Four and Five-year-olds, they, they define Channel 4 as much maybe as any, as any drama is. Yeah, we're a sort of very factually dominated channel. I mean, I, I, I suppose I agree, I'd agree, but we didn't really see the dip, you know. I mean, when I was um, um, going for the head of department job, I obviously boned up on all the facts and stats, and I, I looked back across the piece, and five of the top 20 series on Channel 4 uh, in the last year were specialist factual. So, I mean, that's more than any other department. Uh, four of the top 10 consolidated shows are specialist factual. The, num the hours have gone up every year of the last three. I mean, I sort of think that Planet Earth's a totally wonderful show, but sort of proves what we already knew, which is that if you get it right and you do it with enough scale and ambition, it can compete for pleasure and for audiences with every other genre. And, of course, we don't get sort of BBC One figures, but we found the same with Plane Crash and Life from Space and Richard III and other things that have got that sort of um, epic ambition about them. And is it hard that those three shows you mentioned there, Plane Crash, Life from Space and Richard III, they're, they're sort of big kind of one-offs. You know, are, they, are they harder? I guess they're a bigger risk. Are they they're more expensive? Are they harder to do? How do you sort of tackle those? Stuff? And are they what you're after? Well, I mean, in a way, the, the, they're, a sort of, they're the last phase of the story, but the current one. So the, the trajectory of Specialist Factual and 4 has been 
when it was a Big Brother-dominated channel, the specialist factor was the sort of counterbalance, and it was the sort of fibre in the diet, as it were, and it's gone sort of gradually more into the sort of the main dish now, as it were. And there was a point when I joined when we were the department of crazy one-offs, and some of those, and they'd be spectacular, but they'd be spikes, as it were. And the thing that's happened over the last few years is we've started to get some big returning brands that's, that can play at scale, can play at nine o'clock in the week. So things like SAS, Secret Life, uh, Walking the, uh, all the Guy Martin stuff. Um, Gogglebox came out of Specialist Faction, of course. I, I think we've moved sort of squarely into the mainstream, and the majority of my job is to find the next generation of those returners alongside the odd high-impact single that can sort of add variety and surprise. And Siobhan, I guess uh, Specialist Faction at Sky must have benefit, benefited from the, the big increase in, in homegrown production that we've seen at Sky over the last few years. What's, what's, what's the story there? Uh, I think hugely, and to, and to follow up with what John said, I, I think it's, it's very much become mainstream now. I mean, it used to be Specialist Factual, used to be a division on its own. But if you think of the major shows that uh, John and Tom are talking about and what's been on Sky, it's there. It really has arrived. You know, um, on Sky, we, we had lots of David Attenborough, and now we've moved into Amazing Cats, Amazing Monkeys, and there's going to be Amazing Dogs, all presented by Patrick Airy, Natural History produced in, in Bristol. And that's really punched through and done brilliantly for Sky One. And Sky Arts has genuinely, I mean, I'm not going to go into figures, taken off in the past year. Uh, its specialist factual has, is, is punching through in a way we've never seen before. And those are those beautiful big formats, like Portrait Artist of the Year, Landscape Artist of the Year, Master of Photography, which uh, was produced out of our European hub, because we work with Germany and Italy and UK, uh, kind of took us all by surprise. It's the most elegantly, beautifully produced Italian sentiment. And we didn't think it would really be noisy enough. And, and yet, it has found such a natural audience. Um, and then we've, we've done sort of left-field counterintuitive um, series for, uh, we did Computer Says Show, where we got um, computer scientists from Cambridge University, from Madrid, to come up with an algorithm for a hit musical. So they literally put into a computer what songs, what cast, what storyline even. Um, and that was a fantastic fusion of science and arts. And we put it on in the West End. Wasn't a sellout. Uh, <laughs> Lots of computers came. Yeah. I think there are a few bugs. It's a good show. I want to say I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> but it was that sort of scale, ambition, and fun we could have, and that's where I think, um, you know, uh, Specialist Factual has a brilliant confidence now that people don't think you're completely. I mean, we used to say, "Come with us with your bonkers idea," which I think is a quite demeaning to the genre. And now we just say, "Come with brilliant, bold ideas," and that's what's happened. I think it's really arrived. Give us a sense of the international perspective. Um, <coughs> and in the US, there was a drive, was there, towards more factual entertainment a, a few years back? Um, I think there was a drive, yeah, for a number of years. I think um, particularly when I was in the indie sector pitching to broadcasters in the US, um, it, there was a patch where there was a huge focus on reality shows and less of a focus on specialist factual. Um, and certainly from the perspective of National Geographic, um, that has changed a lot in the last year. Um, and I'd say... Specialist Factual has never been in better shape, to be honest, on National Geographic. Um, and I think that is also, a, that's partly affected um, by the kind of burgeoning of Specialist Factual shows on, on you know, S4, Netflix and, um, and other, um, not broadcasters, but other, you know, um, rev other streams like that. So I'd say um, it's in really, really good shape. Um, we've just had a new programming strategy over the last year 
um, and it's starting to come through with programs like Story of God with Morgan Freeman um, and with the Mars drama and documentary hybrid last year. Story of God with Morgan Freeman was the highest rated series in the history of the channel. So I'd say Specialist Factual's in really good shape. And you mentioned the influence of, uh, of reality there. Tom, as the, the def- Specialist Factual is such a broad genre anyway, but how, how has it evolved? You know, how, how has reality sort of intruded on it? How has it, has, it, has it sort of adopted, you know, aspects of that to make it more sort of user-friendly, accessible? I mean, yeah, I mean I it's a very different beast to, to a few years ago. I, I think what's interesting about what everybody's saying is that it is the sort of idea that Specialist Factual has come of age. I sort of agree with and don't agree with at the same time in the sense that I think certainly from the BBC perspective, Specialist Factual has been buoyant for a really long time. But I think what's happened is the idea that Specialist Factual is for the sort of geeky people over there who are doing the sort of spotty stuff that people aren't going to watch has definitely changed. And I think that's partly because I, I've always hated the term Specialist Factual I hate it. I've said this before on panels. I hate it because my parents don't know what I do for a living. People don't. You know, uh, uh, why, why is there, you know, the BBC now has a popular factual department and I work in specialist factual. I, I, I think that's nuts, if I'm really honest. Because I think the idea that history, science, arts, I don't look after arts, but, you know, I know other people on this panel do, they're somehow specialist, I think, has been a big part of the problem. So I think the sea change has been that, a sort of understanding that there is a big, broad, curious audience out there who are interested in these subjects and want those subjects to be delivered in as varied, entertaining, ambitious way as they want their emotionally compelling reality shows. So I think the thing, I think loads of good things have come in Specialist Factual from Fact Tent and Reality Television, which is compelling characters, real world precincts, an actual story that you want to watch for the whole bloody hour. So I think in a way, that the emergence or the, or, the, or the resurgence of fact tent over the past sort of... I mean, I think fact tent's having a tricky time, you know, across the piece at the moment. People don't really know what it is, and I think part of that is because Specialist Factual has borrowed quite a lot of its trappings. So I think, I think Specialist Factual has just become more audience-facing and less a sort of somehow a noble cause that it's fine that people don't come to. I, th- I think everybody on this panel is probably united in feeling that they want an audience to come to it, that it has to be compelling telly, that it plays by the same rules as every other factual genre. And you can't just go, we made it because it was important. But I, I think people don't know what specialist factual is, and I don't think that's such a bad thing. I mean, it, it's, it's, as you say, it's, it's a strange title. And if you were actually to, only TV people, only in a room like this exactly. on 9 o'clock on a Monday morning, would say, <laughs> this is factual entertainment, this is fa- specialist factual, yeah. whatever. You know, a good idea works. Um, and that's what you want, rather than people sort of trying to put it into a, a category. I agree with that, but I also think that one of the things that special, defines the best specialist factual, and the reason I sort of begrudgingly use the word specialist factual, is I think when we get it right, it promises a depth of content. And certainly for BBC Two, which is sort of the main home for my hours and content, the most successful shows that we've made, whether they're poppy shows or they're sort of quite serious landmark shows, have a real depth of content and a depth of revelation and a depth of insight that I think some of the other genres don't necessarily have. So I think for me, it's a combination of do I want to watch it with? Is it actually telling me something new and surprising and amazing? And I think that, I think that bit mm. of the specialist bit of Specialist Factual matters. But I'd rather it were called, like, super clever factual or factual, <laughs> you know, clever and entertaining factual. Right, well, maybe we can, maybe we yeah. can start that if everyone yeah. tweets that today. Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> make it into a trend. Yeah. Um, 
and, and John, well, you mentioned that your department came out with, um, with Gogglebox, was responsible for Gogglebox, so that, that sort of proves the point that this label is, you know, yeah. it's almost... I mean, that's a slightly anomalous example in a way, but um, it's very true that, I mean, Thomas Shavorn said it probably better than I could, but we, there's been a conscious effort at Channel 4 to break down the genre boundaries um, and to have us all working with each other and sort of straying outside our territory and things, and I think that's really helpful creatively. But it's, it's sort of always been a magpie genre. It's always, you know, 1900 House back in the day. I mean, it's always been the genre that's borrowed from others. And I think you're right, Tom, the balance is to sort of recognise that there are virtues that all good television shares, you know, narrative character, emotion, actuality, suspense, all these sorts of things that, that you know... And, Sometimes I've gone out and talked about those, and people have said, oh, you want documentaries, then? It's like, I just, just want good programmes. Um, uh, but also to recognise that this... I mean, I think the other thing that dis distinguishes... Uh, I'm a slightly reluctant user of the tag, too, but I think the other thing that distinguishes Specialist Factual is it's TV in an analytical mode. It's trying to work out how things work. You know, it's really pulling them apart and sort of getting to understand the systems. And sometimes you just want to follow characters and their emotional trajectories, and that's a great watch, and it would spoil it to sort of start peering around the corner too much. And sometimes you want to sort of look on the anthill from above and map it, and I think that's the latter is our sort of job. But we can do it in far more creative ways than delivering academic paragraphs down the lens. Right, right. <clears throat> okay. Well, I wanted to get a sense, because I'm sure a lot of people here are, are, are program makers and they've got ideas, and, and maybe they haven't worked with you before. So just before we went any further, I wanted to get an idea of just how your commissioning round works, um, or what the best way is to, to approach you, you know, how that relationship works. So if I could just, I won't do this too often today, I don't want to go down the line with every question, but um, Tom, if I could start with you, just get a sense of, um, you know, how do people get in touch? What's the, what's the process? So I have a commissioning team of five commissioning editors um, who work with me. Uh, sort of whichever way you go through commission, whoever you get in touch with in my commissioning team, essentially what happens is we gather together every single Monday for two and a half hours and we go through in depth and we'll be doing it this afternoon, everything which has been pitched and submitted to us and from there we shortlist. So it's a very collaborative process in my team. It's not a sort of, it, 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 there isn't a, a trick to going, well, if you go to her rather than him, you're more likely to get a commission. We, we, everything sort of ends up funneling to the same place. Because we look after an awful lot of hours and an awful lot of genres, I would really urge people to use email <laughs> rather than ask for a meeting. I know that everyone mm. wants a meeting and I understand the, the need and the desire to have face-to-face -face time, but just in terms of getting through the volume of ideas that we get, it's much, much more likely that you'll get a quick decision, you'll get traction quicker if we have an initial pitch, and it, need, and it can be really, really short. And from there, of course, there'll be meetings and face-to-face -face from there. But if you want us to sort of, if the, the system to keep moving, which I desperately want, email's best, and my team are, <coughs> you know, mostly pretty good. We are good at, at getting back to people really quickly. Um, we meet once a week. Uh, there's a team of us. I mainly look after the specialist factual. Um, but the wonderful thing about Sky is it's a very flat structure. We'll sit as a team. The other um, commissioners look after entertainment. We'll go through ideas once a week, especially on arts, and we go and, and, we, and we talk them through. I have found the best way to get a commission through is, um, yes, if you have a meeting, but far quicker, more effective, is one email and in the subject title to have, a, um, the subject heading to have a title that grabs me. And I'm afraid this works every time. Is that if there is a bit of footage there and you can shoot it on your phone, but it's, it's, the, um, it's the tone and the sentiment and I get it because you can write what you want, but when you see it visually, we work in a visual medium, I get it, it's kind of, and what people are doing more and more actually is, that, is they're sending me a film clip 
or something like that, and immediately I get the tone of their aspiration, and it's a great starting point because then I get it, and I go into a meeting and I say, "Look at this," and you know, I know you're you're doing gold, for instance, and, and there's the film out at the moment, gold. And if somebody has sent, I was thinking this last night, if somebody has sent me a clip of that potentially Hollywood blockbuster to say, just mm. nicked a bit of the trailer, I could have immediately get it. Or, you know, some people say that there's this great person who'd be amazing talent on your on your channel. But I kind of don't believe it until I see that person. So go and take your phone and, and, and get a bit of a sync bike from them. And then immediately you get their charisma, uh, their, their, their eloquence from there. Um, Simon. Um, with National Geographic, um, we used to, there used to be two different channels. There used to be the international channel and the US, international channels and the US channel. Now it's just one unified National Geographic channel. Um, and there are three development hubs. Um, New York, uh, Washington DC and London um, and essentially it's one commi single commissioning process for the entire channel um, and you can enter that commissioning process through any of those three hubs. Um, I happen to work in the London hub with Hamish Mycura um, and uh, there's Charlie Parsons and Alan Ayres in Washington DC and Igal Svet in New York. Um, don't pitch twice into different parts of the same organization because it's going to end up at the same table um, but come to any one of us um, to get your ideas in and we're I'd say we're really really hungry for ideas at the moment um, given our you know our new programming needs in terms of um, how to pitch email is great you know just a just a paragraph at the start um, and then like Tom said you know if there's then potential to move it forward absolutely a meeting and to talk further about the idea or maybe, you know, move on to treatment stage. And like Siobhan said, there's nothing that grabs you better than a little bit of footage, you know, that just gives you a sense of, of what the idea is all about, whether it's your own footage or whether it's footage you've, you've got from YouTube. Um, just something that grabs hold of you is often a better way to get me interested and to get me to fully invest in the idea. And finally, John. Okay, so now I'm going to repeat everyone. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll try and... It's sort of pretty much the same, basically. <coughs> Worth saying, no commissioning rounds. We don't really do that. It's just continuous rolling commissioning. My team is uh, Rob Colstrom doing history, uh, usually Sarah Ramsden doing science, although she's um, injured herself, so Tom Porter is covering her job at the moment. Got two new people joining. Um, Alf Laurie and Shaminda Nahal, they're joining at the end of February. Um, if you keep an eye on the website, we're going to update exactly what everyone's roles are and what sort of things they look after. We all sort of stray a bit from our briefs, but um, that's the sort of design to help you know which ideas, you know, what to take where. Um, so the brief on the website is surprisingly up to date, um, uh, and I'll try and keep it that way. The other thing I do is I try and send out, and this is open to anyone who wants, basically, if you want to be on this mailing list, send me, send me an email, a sort of little note every quarter that says, look, we're a bit short on science, or... We're sort of wondering what to do about Trump, or you know, that, they're just a kind of what's in our mind a little bit. Um, and That's very existential, John. What to do about Trump? <laughs> well, yeah, it's quite, quite a big question, right? Um, yeah. And, and I totally agree about the email thing. Not just just because it's efficient and because it sort of gets ideas through quicker, but also I sort of think if you can't start from a, I mean, what we're doing all the time, endlessly, is. Uh, just thinking, right, you know, however good the substance of this is, is anyone going to turn up for the start of it? That's obviously the main question, isn't it, right? So if you can't convey that in a top line uh, and a title, it probably isn't going to cut through in the listings, you know, unless there's some sort of massive celebrity attached to it or you're sort of playing off the back of some huge inheritance. So I think it is really, and I know it's a bit less humor, human than sort of sitting in a room and chatting, 
But um, we can get to the sitting room and chatting a bit after doing a bit of filtering on email. So I would always say, please send a paragraph by email. We are endlessly hungry for new talent. Everyone is, I suspect. In our case particularly, I would say female authorship and BAME authorship. I think we're short on both of those. Um, so that's a generalized appeal to all of you. Anyone who wants to send me brilliant people, great. You know, I think, I mean, all of you know what sort of person we look for. It's someone who's uh, um, idiosyncratic, strongly charismatic, whose authority derives from what they do. I mean, you watch Guy enthusing about engineering, knowing that he's been a lorry mechanic and a bike racer, and he's, that's where he's coming from. Uh, he's got a very distinctive uh, uh, persona. Because I think we've been a bit self-denying in recent years and sort of about subject matter. We've often thought, oh, can't do that, it's a bit BBC. Um, but actually, I mean, you can't get more straight up specialist factual than someone standing doing a piece to camera in front of a dam. And I think that shows that you can find the channel fullness of it in the tone and the approach and the talent, not necessarily in sort of like retreating to the margins as far as uh, subject matter goes. And I think the other thing that's important to me about that is it sort of shows... I never liked that phrase about smuggling facts into programmes. It sort of always struck me as slightly insulting to the audience. And you don't need to smuggle if you've got a guy. You, you can share his enthusiasm. I mean, the, the content is the pleasure in that. And you can see it, you know, um, uh, delivered in a completely sort of unfussy way. And once you've got a, someone of that level of enthusiasm and, and, and sort of um, genuine uh, charisma, you can build an enormous amount of slate around them. And you can get sort of, you know, climate change, state control... Um, uh, rise of China to two plus million viewers. So um, uh, more of the same, please, would be very nice. So it's a sense of sort of ambition and, and more personality and colour, but also you know being sort of front of house with the facts. You know, it's a yeah. yeah I suppose it's a sort of like I mean, we always say we want doers, right? That's the, that's one of the key things about our approach is that we all we always learn things by watching people um, do them, and that's been that's what we've done sort of uh, for a long time. But actually, if you watch Guy there. There's a fairly straight-up delivery of facts, but just coming from the background he's coming from, uh, it lands in a different way to the sort of slightly more academic, illustrated article type approach. Great. And I should say also, we will have time for questions at the end, but if, if, if you've got uh, a burning question during our chat, do, uh, do put your hand up and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll try and come to you. Now, the uh, next clip is a BBC clip. So, uh, Tom, do you, want to, uh, do you want to say a few words first? So, so this is a clip from Spy in the Wild, which is the Natural History series, which is currently playing on BBC One to... For us, you know, it's a non-David Attenborough natural history series on BBC One that's playing to pretty remarkable audiences. And I'm showing this clip. It, it, it delivers, I think, genuinely new insight into animal behaviour. I think it's gripping and emotional. I also think it's perfect, not just for sort of broadcast television, but as has been proven by the success of a clip online, it's sort of the perfect kind of clip that can go viral, and it has gone viral, has been watched by... I'm not even going to make up the numbers, but it's in the millions. Um, and, and so I think... It, it, and what I love about the clip is that it, it has, I think, sort of something in its DNA which speaks to a, a, an openness to the audience. And I think it's partly... I guess if there's any theme to what I'm saying, one of the things that I've been thinking about quite a lot is when you're trying to evolve what Specialist Factual does, what do I think my job is? And I've, I've been doing Specialist Factual at the BBC or parts of it for quite a long time. And I think that clip is, for want of a better phrase, sort of generous to the audience because I think the worst Specialist Factual makes you feel really stupid and makes you feel like there's sort of all these cleverer people who know stuff that you don't and their job is to tell it to you and you feel grateful to them for telling it to you because aren't you stupid for not knowing it in the first place? I think what natural history has always done, perhaps better than some of the other genres, is go, isn't the world sort of extraordinary and wonderful and isn't it amazing for you, the audience, and us, the programme makers, to sort of share in that wonder? And I would like 
some of our other content to be as sort of open and generous. And in some ways, it speaks to what I think John is saying about Guy Martin, which is that he is someone who is incredibly knowledgeable, incredibly passionate, and yet he makes you feel not stupid when you watch him, but as though you're, part, you're along for the ride, you're part of the journey with him. And so one of the things that I'd like people to help me do is sort of make some of our other special special content, not natural history, which I think is already doing this, but some of our history content in particular, maintain its sort of depth of insight and expertise, but also just be a bit more approachable. And part of that's the sort of clarity of the top line proposition, but it's also about the tone in which it's made. You know, I think when, you know, I, I've done very little history commissioning at the BBC until recently. I did Victorian slum in my, in my previous job. I think that had an openness to the audience. I think it, I, I think it was a, even though it's quite a dark proposition, it was a welcoming proposition. I'm not just going to commission loads of living history, but I'd like our history and science content to feel more that it is, it is in the real world, it is of our world, and that the experience you're having is one which is as much about pleasure as it is about knowledge. Is it, is it tricky to do that without slipping too far the other way, to sort of uh, not to, to, to lose sight of what you're trying to do in the first place? To... In my experience, no, actually. I mean, I think, I, I, I think the, the, the best specialist factual, the best factual, the best telly is, is rich in factual content. And I actually think the desire for the audience to have more and more content and insight, the, their bar's going up, not down. Partly, I think, because we live in a very high-velocity world, people consume content quicker than they used to. So they want more facts, they want more detail, they want you to get to it quicker. Uh, but I think that the... So no, I genuinely don't worry about that. I don't, I don't think any of our most successful content has had to dumb down in order to bring a broad audience. I just haven't seen that happen. I haven't seen it happen at other broadcasters, actually. It doesn't feel like there is a sort of binary choice between depth of content and size of audience. Actually, I've seen it go the other way, which is if the programme borrows more of the trappings of the genres, it means it moves a bit quicker, it engages a bit faster, it sort of speaks to head and heart at the same time, you can get really significant audiences without losing the audience appreciation of it. And you mentioned that went viral. A, a viral hit is a question for all of you, I guess. Are you all after those sort of, um, you know, the special factual equivalent of, of carpool karaoke, you know, those kind of one, two-minute hits that people watch at their desk and then watch the whole programme when they get, get back? Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. How do you do that? Is it, is, it, is it wrong to sort of come up with an idea with that in mind, or is it just a... Does it almost happen by accident, which you've got, you know... Well, uh, I, I don't think we're the experts on it, actually. Yeah. What I've noticed is that our social media team will suggest something, you know, this is a great clip, and they will come at it completely different, say, no, this is, this is the one. And it's all about uplift, I think. People have to feel it's uplifting, even if you're doing a really serious, dark thing. Because um, it is about... Or that. amusing. Yeah, or <laughs> amusing. Funny yeah. is best. Yeah. Or... Um, you know, uh, identity signalling, that's another thing that we find a lot. Um, things that sort of speak to who you are and uh, allow you to say to the world, look, I'm uh, posting this clip of a birth in Aleppo and that's because I care about it. You know, there's this, I mean, the people who've pioneered it at four, really, uh, the news and the team there, and they've been absolutely amazing at doing They've got millions and millions of views for things that you would have thought, oh, it's quite hardcore, you know, do people desperately want to send that around? Um, and they've sort of taught the rest of us. It's one of the reasons that I'm excited about um, Shaminda Nahal who's coming to join the team as the deputy editor of the news. So um, when she arrives, if you can bombard her with that stuff, that'd be really good. Um, but I think, I think it is a, we're, we're, it's an evolving thing, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. I, I think the other thing is that it doesn't necessarily, certainly my evolution in terms of understanding digital, and it's, you know, it's taking time for me. It's not how I grew up, and it's not what I was a sort of 
program maker in, is that it doesn't necessarily, that circle of they've seen the clip online and they're going to come back and watch your show is simply not true. No, so the that. idea yeah. that you're using, the, that, that this is somehow not proper viewing and that they have to then come back to watch your program long form, I think is just wrong. You know, mm. I believe that the people who only watch that two minutes of Spy in the Wild, I've had an experience of Spy in the Wild and that's a really, really good thing. So we had a series last year, which aired just before Christmas called Big Life Fix. It's a series I've talked about on many, many platforms before in the run up to a TXing. The, the truth is that the audience figures for the series were, I'm not gonna lie, disappointing. I thought it was a brilliantly made series. I feel very committed to it as a sort of signal of what Special Factor at the BBC should be doing. But there was one clip which was um, actually the clip that I used to show at panels. So maybe I was, maybe I've got a digital mind, which, um, <laughs> which was then watched by 47 million people. So, uh, and that clip had uh, all the qualities you're talking about, which is it was incredibly emotional. It had transformation at the heart of it. And I think in terms of identity, it made people feel good when they posted it. Now, is, that a, is it frustrating that those 47 million people didn't rush to the iPlayer and go, I must catch up with this or rush to the TX volume? Yeah, of course it is. But I feel really, but I still think that's part of the success of that show. It's not a sort of addendum of that show. 47 million people watched two and a half minutes of Big Life Fix, and I think that's a brilliant thing. How many watched The Race of Snakes and the Baby? Less. Really? Fewer, yeah. So I think that's been the nation nightmares. But, but I think, but in some way, <laughs> and me too. Imagine how many times I had to watch yeah. it. It's like, sorry, what's that iguana doing? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's partly because more people had watched the broadcast programmes. So maybe they didn't need to watch the clip. So I think that's about 10 million, which, hey, I'm not going to complain about 10 million people watching Race okay. of Snakes versus Iguanas. But, but I found the numbers for Big Life Fix genuinely jaw-dropping because that's content which, you know, it, it, people dream of reaching that mil many millions of people. And if someone was, if we'd been sitting in a room 20 years ago talking about Specialist Factual, anybody watching, 47 million people watching any of our content, that would have felt like a huge thing. But if you um, sent a clip like that, you'd commission the show, wouldn't you? You'd yeah, without a doubt. That, yeah, no, without, without a doubt. But, uh, but I think we need to get beyond the idea that the overnights in particular, which is still the sort of tyranny of our lives ridiculously, but I think the idea that the only way that people can consume our content is that as we intended 50 minute for Channel 4 hour long programme for the BBC, I think that's really old fashioned. Mm. Right, and, and now you get the opportunity to, to, to change that online, whether it's on BBC Three or... Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. There's, and, there is a, and there is no doubt an audience who want to watch. You know, uh, there's lots of interesting research being done at the moment about the, those sort of gaps in the day where people want content, which, you know, no-one wants to sit on the tube in the morning and watch an hour of a television programme because their journey probably doesn't quite last an hour. So there's quite interesting stuff going on, which is how do you get people to consume content at times when it's convenient for them? And actually, maybe a five-minute version or a two-minute version is more convenient than a 60-minute version. Yeah. So it goes across the demographic range, doesn't it? So the, the, this is not a specialist factual show, but the moment I sort of clocked this was when we did um, Cucumber, Banana and Tofu, the interlinked Russell T Davis drama um, series. And I remember talking about Cucumber on Channel 4 being the main show and, e and, and, and Banana on um, E4 being the switchover show. And someone said, well, look, if you're in your 20s, E4 is the main show, you know, Banana's the main show, and the Channel 4 show is the switchover show. And if you're sort of, I mean, maybe that's in your 30s, if you're, if you're a sort of um, 16 to 24, Channel 4 is all four, right? That's the, that's the gateway, right? Uh, and so Tofu is the main show, and the other two are things you might go and explore afterwards. So you've got to sort of somehow configure, our, we've got to configure our offering 
differently for this enormous range of sort of tastes and practices that we're, we're um, sending it out to. And I think really importantly to what John's saying, I don't think you have to, one of the things that I'm not planning to do is commission lots which is sort of digital first. So I think the best idea is, and I'm sure that's true of a lot of John's content, a lot of your content, you think at the beginning, and we're getting better at this, how can you create an offer which works on linear television but also works digitally rather than spending loads and loads of money on things which you know frankly the internet is a sort of badlands where it can just disappear into the ether you know another video another clip but actually consolidating it around a brand or a title and being able to create content which works on different platforms i think is really exciting and you know value for money so it's be boring but it is yeah Right, uh, Siobhan, uh, I don't know if you want to uh, introduce your, yes. your, your Sky. It's important uh, if you can come up with good partnerships. So if we partnership with the ENO, if we, we did a, a great exhibition and documentary at the VNA, because by going with those big names, we create more noise. Uh, also, the talent is hugely important. And we are, you know, as, as everybody is, very much looking out for BAME and for female and for new talent and trying to move away, and I'm sorry to say this, but trying to move away from um, white, middle-aged men talking, which actually, sadly, traditionally, the arts has always been. If you look at a lot of arts programming, it is um, men of, uh, of middle age sort of just talking about a painting rather than actually doing. And, and where portrait and landscape have moved forward is you actually see the painting happening. And where master photography happens, you see the photographs being taken. So you're much more in it and involved. Um, and we really want, I mean, we've all been talking about, you know, specialist factual and, and where it is. I think what, what we really want is, some, is clever boldness uh, to bring an idea that you might think only a Hollywood budget would have, but bring it to us and we can work with it and talk about it and get more partners involved and try and make it really happen. I mean, and that's why it's so exciting because it is, to, to use a cliche, a huge canvas. And, you know, Sky, as you know, technology, they're working, you know, we might be working with, with another institution in VR, we've done 3D. We do have great technology there to, to bring this sort of programming even further. And you mentioned diversity there, and I guess that the, the, issue is, a, is, is really a big one for, across the board in terms of when people pitch to you, and can, can you prove some sort of, you know, your diverse credentials? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I, I always think, though, it needs to sort of... I know this sounds a bit wet, but I think it needs to sort of come from the heart. I mean, I think, I, I think my real worry about the push for diversity, if we do it wrong, is that it becomes a sort of tick-box exercise where we go, well, it's great because we've got that person, we've got that person, and there's that director who does that, and then we're done. And I actually feel really strongly that we have to think about diversity in the very broadest sense. There is something about hearing Guy Martin speak, which actually, the fact that he has the accent that he has and comes from the background that he comes from. When we talk about white middle-aged men, well, on one level, he's a white middle-aged man, but I think he feels incredibly distinctive. I worry that in, in the mix of sort of what could be a tick box exercise, we forget that there is diversity across the piece in the UK, which involves people from different backgrounds to the backgrounds that, forgive me, lots of the people in this room and lots of people on this panel will come from. So I think we, we have to go into this sort of in a very open-hearted way, which is we're trying to make telly better and we're trying to reflect the audience back at itself better. We're not just doing it because it feels like it's but the right I, thing I to do. I think the other thing is when you talk about diversity, I mean, I think of sort of like 50 Ways and Baza Shmawi, who uh, we found, and when I first saw the, the casting tape, he was brilliant. He just punched through 
and, and, and you thought he had such charisma and he was so sky. And uh, Baz is mixed race Egyptian Irish. And, and that's the starting point. I mean, you, you know, you, I think almost we have to see more people now. And when somebody punches you, and then if they are, you know, have a diverse background as you're referring to, then you take them on. You can't, I mean, I don't think anybody mm. would ever think, I'm just going to go for that person because they're from a different background. Of course, well, we were really sorry. sorry we were really surprised when we went and looked back at uh, our commissions from last year and realised that, in fact, we've commissioned one show that's presented by um, a white American male. It was it was a really really big surprise. It happened to be Leonardo DiCaprio, um, which kind of <laughs> you'd go for him, wouldn't you? Um, but but we've got people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Morgan Freeman on the channel. Um, uh, Jason Silver, if you count him as Latino, if you look at the, the kind of breadth, and then we have you know, women like um, Katie Couric. We, it was accidental, in a way. It was a surprise to us to, to go back and actually look at our commissions and analyse them and, and, and see that. We were going for the best talent at the time. But so it was almost quite refreshing. Just, just to pick up on that, I think, I mean, I think there's something interesting what everyone's saying. You can... I think there's a, a not bigger opportunity than that. I agree, tick boxing is not the way to go, but... In our remit at Channel 4, it says offer alternative perspectives on the world. That's part of what we're supposed to do. And this is one of the most obvious and clear ways to yep. do that. It's the sort of natural form of challenge and distinctiveness and all the rest of it. The other thing I wanted to say just briefly is that there's a very particular issue for us at the moment, I think it's special special on 4, which is for several years now, we've been deliberately the department in the channel that has been chasing young male audiences um, on a channel that skews female and a medium that skews female. And that was a sort of quite conscious strategy it's led, I mean, you know, I'm glad we've done it in a way that's sort of slightly more thoughtful than just chest beating, and you've got shows like SAS and uh, some of the Graysons of Man and all the rest of it. But I think we've now tipped two male as a department, and um, one of the things I'm very keen to try and do is to, is to just sort of write that gender balance of it, both in authorship and in representation and in choice of subject matter. So please, I usually say, you know, watch the channel. That'll give you a sense of what we're about. Pitch off the back of that. I would say at the moment... We're trying to make a, gen, uh, a conscious shift, a bit of direction, um, and I want to make sure that message gets through. Okay, great, thank you. Simon, it's over yeah. to you. Yeah, there's a huge kind of scale and ambition with everything we're doing, and that counts for the feature docs, um, and it also counts for any of our, our factual series as well. In relation to um, the LA riots in 1992, um, obviously there's a really powerful story of our, from our recent history to tell. Um, it has a contemporary relevance um, with the Black Lives Matter campaign and all the issues that are still affecting race rela relations in the United States. But what's interesting about that, that particular approach to the subject matter is it, it kind of draws on some other themes that we've been um, building on. One of the first um, uh, shows that um, I worked on when I arrived as a commissioner at the channel um, was about the Challenger disaster. Um, and there was an interesting approach to the storytelling merely to use archive, no interviews. Um, it's archive and found sound. Not a single interview, not a single piece of CGI, not a single line of voiceover. There were, I think, two or three TX card, uh, th uh, title cards just to give you a little bit of information during that film. It was a kind of uh, devotion to the raw material and to the authenticity that that raw material conveys. And that's something that comes out in the LA-92 uh, film as well. And I think... That's one thing that I'm really focused on in this day and age. I think it was interesting what happened yesterday with the, you know, somebody working for um, the President of the United States starting to talk about alternative facts. 
And I think, um, you know, that's something that we need to be thinking about as a factual TV community quite a lot. Because that's, you know, we've got four years of this, you know, or maybe even eight years, you never know. But, you know, we're a factual channel and we have a devotion to giving as real and authentic portrayal of any sphere that we might be telling a story about. Um, even if it's drama, you know. There is some drama on, on National Geographic Channel as well, you know, or in our drama documentaries. There's a devotion to authenticity, um, and, and that needs to run as a thread through everything that we do, and I think that's, that's something that films like the LA92 film should do, but everything else across National Geographic's output needs to do. Can I just jump in a sec? There's something really interesting. I, I think LA92 looks amazing. And there's a really interesting creative trend, I think, going on, sort of around purism. So there's the archive-only films, there's all the slow TV single-shot stuff, which is really interesting. There's a lot of pure testimony stuff out there that has really interested me. The kind of um, Black is the New Black on the BBC, um, I thought it was very formally interesting, um, and the Jonathan Stadlin stuff on Channel 5. Um, there's a sort of, sort of push each element to its extreme. There's a lot of drama happening in one room. You know, you think of The Watchmen or Cyberbully on Channel 4. I just think there's sort of something to be done with that. SAS came a bit out of a conversation off the back of watching 24 Hours in Police Custody and seeing how compelling the interview was, the long, long interview in the first episode of the first series of that. Um, and then obviously Line of Duty did its 18-minute interview scene after that, and it came a bit out of saying, look, do you reckon you could run a whole hour around one interrogation? You know, how far could you push it? Does it get more interesting when you go purer? Uh, and I, I just... One of the things I'd like to see a bit more of, or I'm keen to get a bit more of, is that kind of formal experimentation and play and that sort of visible innovation, and that's one of the areas I think we could test the limits of it. And it's almost asking more of the viewer, uh, you know, less hand-holding and just sort of presenting them with it, and actually they, re they respond to it and, and, yeah, and they, they enjoy it. Yeah, It's a bit like you go through the barrier a bit, almost. Like, sort of, on, if you half do, it doesn't work, but if you really run it, it does, you know? That's often true of stuff in... I remember, um, I think it was Google or Amazon at Edinburgh Festival one year said that... Or, or YouTube, it was YouTube, said that they, they thought they were ahead of us broadcasters because... Um, they don't set up interviews anymore because the viewers are so used to just seeing unedited almost footage. Mm. And, and whereas traditionally we've always said, this is John Smith and he does this and that. And then we have moved away from that. But in fact, we maybe have to move even further because that's what's happening on YouTube and that's the way we're heading. Yes. There's, de there's definitely something about the fact that the, there was definitely a period of time, and I think, again, this is true across all factual, where it felt that the hand of the producer was very much a part of the mix. It was high in the mix. The audience would accept that you'd spend ages explaining the construction of the format. And now, I think, you know, every panel you will go to about factual, in different ways, so much of it is about sort of removing the hand of the producer. Yeah. And, of course, those pro projects are often the hardest to produce, and they're produced within an inch of their bloody lives. You know, if you look at... You know, I used to make 24 Hours in a &E for Channel 4. It is a very sophisticated, highly produced... 24 Hours in a &E is essentially a format. Yes, it mm. takes place in a documentary space, but it is a format, and it's been a hugely successful format. But the hand of the producer is next to... I mean, I can see it, because I used to make it, but it's next to invisible. And I think that, in some ways, that sort of can you do an interrogation that lasts for a whole, a whole hour is partly speaking to the idea is to what extent can we produce something very heavily without the audience knowing that you're producing it very heavily. The slow TV films on BBC4 are very carefully, they're both not produced and produced at the same time. Mm. So, so I think there's definitely a sort of, it's a, it's a game of cat and mouse in a funny way with the audience, which is a, which is a how far can you 
can you hide how sophisticated? Because I'm sure LA 92, which I, I do think looks amazing, will be is very carefully produced. Um, yeah. yeah, although, uh, yeah, yeah, to a certain degree. I think what, what's interesting for me as well is it's not just about um, making the producer feel invisible. It's sometimes just about being honest about the presence of the producer. I think it's interesting you're talking about uh, SAS. Um, you know, it's a, it's a constructed show, but within that construction, there's an authenticity of experience. And it's, yes. it, you know, you're, you're watching these people go through this experience and you genuinely trust that they're going through a real experience. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? But things that are very strongly themselves in any direction tend to work, don't they? So, I mean, Spy in the Wild, I enjoy because I'm sort of let in on the entire production process. It's almost the opposite, isn't it, what you're saying? It but equally, to, you know, the, our version of that show that looks completely unproduced but is absolutely meticulously and beautifully edited is the Leveson Wood walking stuff. Yeah. Where um, I remember bringing the first cut of um, Walking the Nile back to the office and showing it to David Glover and he was like, this is brilliant, it's like watching Rushes. And I was thinking, is that good, you know? But I mean, it was like, it was, it was the pleasure of it. Was it jumps and it can't, it didn't have the sort of standard sort of cliche story arcs and things. But I mean, my God, does it take unbelievable skill on the part of the team from October to get it to feel that loose. Um, and just to add to your point about Lena too, of course it's, it's produced, it's, it's edited, it's crafted, you know, it's curated. It's the experience of those events through the eyes of a director. Um, so absolutely. I'm not, I'm, I mean, I'm not saying, obviously, uh, you know, I, I, I was a programme maker for a really long time. I, yeah. I, 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 I work with really brilliant producers. I want you to produce. I'm not saying yeah. there's anything wrong yeah. with producing. Uh, I, I think the interesting thing about Spy in the Wild actually is, it, it, is I think it does speak to the same trend, which is, yes, it puts the spy cameras front and centre. Actually, the most sophisticated footage in Spy in the Wild does not come from the spy cameras. And so, again, it's a sort of sleight of hand where the audience mm. feels that they're getting something which is specifically from one perspective, which actually gives you permission. In a way, the spy cameras are a way of saying to the audience, come and watch this because it's different. Actually, once you're in it, the very best sequences have nothing to do with the spy cameras, but the overall sort of packaging of the show. And I think that undermines the show, actually. I think it adds a sort of layer to it, which makes it feel distinctive and pleasurable. But it's actually underneath it a very sophisticated bit of natural history filmmaking. Okay, I'll come to your questions in just one minute. Just want to ask very quickly. That was uh, one emerging trend. Are there any other trends you, you, you'd flag before I take questions? That, uh, maybe the, you know the next big thing, or oh, it's, it's a direct question. But um. Um, certainly for me, I it, it's interesting because I think that one of the things that I would this sounds for people who know me probably sounds quite odd. Um, but I think one of the things that I'm very cautious of in terms of, and yes, I believe in hybridizing, and yes, I believe in sort of everything that everyone says on these panels, which is big, bold, scale, provocative, blah, let's just assume I want all those things. But I think genre definition, certainly for me, and it might be because I'm relatively new to some of the genres, really, really matters. So, and I don't mean that the audience needs to go, God, that was a really good piece of religion. But I do think there's a real danger that you can duck doing history and science and religion by sort of hybridising so much that actually the, the, the specialist factual content disappears. So I think when we made Muslims Like Us last year for BBC Two, I think it was a really, really strong piece of religion broadcasting. And I think, when I think about the best history programmes we make, or, you know, I think Victorian Slum was a really brilliant piece of history programming. And so the thing that I would urge everyone, and this isn't a trend, but it's just, I think I, I, the genre, where however it gets sort of shaken about and made provocative and full of scale and blah, 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 the, the heart of the genre does still need to be there. I, would, I, I think there's a real risk that if you hybridise and hybridise and hybridise so much that actually what you find yourself doing 
is not making science, history, religion content at all. And I think it's incredibly important for British broadcasting that we continue to have strong history, religion and science broadcasting. I think it really matters. Siobhan, what do you get too much of or, or not enough of? Or... I, I think people aren't in some ways being playful enough. If you think, and I'm talking with arts here, but if you think back a few years ago in Sky One, we did Pineapple Dance Studios, which was pitched to us as a straight obs doc. Go and do, you know, six episodes on a dance studio. And actually, uh, we worked with the indie and pushed them, and they came back and they said, well, why don't you suddenly break out of dance in the middle of a really, what seems like a straight factual scene? So you have policemen walking to reception, and suddenly, and you think they're going to report something outside the dance studio, and suddenly the policemen start dancing. Um, that sort of playing with the form and having fun, and I've got a couple of ideas in the moment, <coughs> with uh, dance and opera companies, and I'm trying to encourage people to try and think, is there something bonkers? And I, I think that's quite an old-fashioned one. Is there something really different we could do with that uh, to make arts as fun as it possibly can be and move away from a traditional take on it? Simon, what would be your priority for, for 17, 18? Um, in terms of priorities, um, uh, yeah, scale and impact, <laughs> um, and then um, on top of that, I think um, the one thing I would say is um, we're finding it, it's a double-edged, you know, sort of, we're finding it quite a challenge um, uh, to do history at the moment. That's not to say we aren't looking for ways to, um, to uh, you know, breathe life into that particular genre for us. It's been important in the past, archaeology, ancient history and history. Um, it's something that we're finding it difficult to do because um, we're wanting uh, really quite innovative approaches um, to, to all of the programmes that we make and we're having probably the biggest problem with history out of all of those. So I'd say history is something we have been commissioning less of um, uh, but like I said <laughs> we're looking for the right kind of approach if it does actually feel like it's something fresh and new for us. Um, I think the most important thing for us, and this isn't like every, every commissioner doesn't say in a, in a, in a pitch se session, why should we do this now? Um, um, but uh, finding uh, approaches that really have a contemporary relevance is the flip side of that challenge for us of doing history. You know, if there are massive discoveries that are being made or really, really important connections between the piece of history and the present day, such as in the LA-92, um, uh, show um, I think you know there's absolutely a reason to do it but things need that contemporary relevance and John you mentioned the female male skew but is there, is there a, a, other particular topics or slots that you are you know that you're enthusiastic for that you're not getting enough well I mean journalism is really crucial for us too you can sort of see it a bit in the hirings that I've um, made I mean someone said to me much more experienced commissioner than me said to me look the danger of commissioning is you spend too much time thinking about telly and not enough time thinking about the world and I think that's we can all be in that bubble a bit. And um, so you talk about trends, I sort of think, you know, digital revolution, climate change, you know, new identity politics, Trump, you know, it's that, speaking to that sort of agenda. The other thing I think we all sort of need an injection of, speaks a bit to what you were saying, Sean, is sort of, I feel like the only downside of having all these returning successes is you need, I sort of feel a bit of a lack of that kind of visible innovation. And I mean, you know, new camera techniques, um, new graphics techniques, new things that play with the form of programs, um, you know, hybridization of the kind that doesn't push the kind of mush that Tom's talking about, where everything's just sort of one big fact end sort of pile in the middle. 
Uh, and I kind of look back a little bit fondly at things like um, Human Footprint or Great Sperm Race or, I mean, not just on, the, on, the, on, on, on Channel 4, um, Walking with Dinosaurs, Invisible Worlds, um, Plane Crash, Life Class. You know, sort of, there's a kind of, you know, Inside Nature's Giants, Hippo, Wild Feast. There's things that felt like experiments in television. Uh, and I just would like to get a little bit more of that on the, on the books um, just to give us the sort of different flavour of difference alongside the stuff that's coming back. And I, and I think, interestingly, that we're, we're in that cycle that Special Factual does go through where there was a period of time where it felt that everything was specials, you know, sort of big standout specials like Plane Crash or an Inside Nature Giant sort of grew into a series, but it had a sort of special sort of heart to it. I think what's happened both at the BBC and at Channel 4 is there has been a period of... Very, in very different forms and very different tones, but successful returning formats. John's talked about his, my side, trust me, I'm a doctor inside the factory, and now to save your life. Those big shows which end up playing, and, and they're a blessing and a curse for commissioning departments because there's that brilliant first year where you go, it was a massive hit. There's a brilliant second year where you go, we've got a returning show on the books. By the time you get to the third year, it's doing brilliant things for you and the channel. It's not necessarily doing brilliant things for your overall ability to spend money. And so what you start to do, I think, is, is you retreat and you, you, or you consolidate. And so I certainly think there will be a return to splashy, one-off, special. I certainly feel for the first time in the market for going all right, I'm ready. I've said it a few times. Factual theatre, I think, is a sort, it's an old Channel 4 term that sort of fell out of fashion. But I think there is something, and I think it speaks to what Siobhan's saying as well, it, it might be playfulness or theatrical, whatever the word is, but there is a sense that, you, you know, specialist factual shouldn't just be something that fills the schedule in a good way or, or provides the schedule with share stability. It needs to do things that sort of punch beyond that. You know, um, John did a brilliant, um, brilliant thing with Guy Martin last year, Wall of Death, which... You know, I talk about too much on panels because they have nothing to do with me. And then people are like, why are you talking about Channel 4 and how great It had nothing to do with me. It was but Sarah Ramston, but thank but you. It a, but, it's a, but it was a brilliant, brilliant piece of factual theatre. And I think there is something about that, that, that treat in the show. We all know what it's like when you go home and you look at the TV schedule and you go, there's nothing on telly, or this is a load of crap, what, what's going on? And I, and I do it, and I'm a bloody commissioner. I'm like, there's nothing on TV. It is amazing when you can provide the audience with something that feels like a proper treat. I think Planet of Two in its own way was a proper treat for people, but I think big event telly can do that. Great, thank you very much. Right, it's time for your questions. Uh, and we've got a few down the front here. Thanks very much. Hello, uh, yeah. Gillian Mosley. Um, having produced, among other things, uh, Mummifying Alan and Joanne Fletcher on the BBC, um, I was quite surprised a couple of years ago when we did a very little show for Channel 4, um, which went on to win, uh, I don't know, Best Public Engagement British Archaeology Awards. So was it nerdy? Yes. Uh, which was the highest rated show I have ever made in my entire career. And that includes when two million was just a given. Um, so might we be overthinking this? I mean, John, you commissioned it. Uh, yeah, I was very pleased. It was a brilliant show. I mean, I sort of think we need, a, we need a mix, you know? I mean, that was a fantastic show. In the end, content wins, doesn't it? So it's one of the most interesting discoveries in the world that year. In the same way, we had a show last year that Rob Coldstream commissioned, um, that um, uh, Riker made, which was a, a First Contact Lost Tribe of the Amazon, rated enormously because it was a tribe coming out of and making First Contact. Things, I think when you've got a proper... This is what I mean by journalism. Genuine new discovery... 
you can play it quite straight, and I agree, you can, you can do the, we always talk about too many pizza toppings, right? That's the sort of danger, isn't it? Um, sadly, there aren't quite enough of those absolute standout moments to fill the schedule, at that which point you do have to think it a bit more. That's, that would be my view. If you could just pass the mic behind you, that would be great. Thank, thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, my name is Victoria. If somebody got the idea commissioned, somebody unknown but prospective filmmaker, say, Russian, living in London, and you really love the idea for a documentary, so how would you build the team? Would, what would be the role of this filmmaker in a production team? You, you, are you an independent? Yes, freelance. You, well, I mean, we'd first recommend that you get together with a production company that we work with a lot and we think would look after you well in a sort of co-pro capacity. Yeah, but production houses, they have their own teams, normally free people. Not so what would be the role of newcomer? Not, not necessarily. I mean, I don't know if it's experience for everybody else, but if you go to a production company and say, there's this great filmmaker, you know, can you provide the backing for them and help them and, and nurture them? Most are more than willing. With a commission attached to it, yeah. Particularly yeah. if you're coming with the idea, yeah, absolutely. Um, because that's what we're, that's the, you know, that's the currency of um, factual commissioning is those ideas and the thirst for them, so. And I think the reality is to be, if you're a, a filmmaker who is new to that commissioner or that commissioning team, being paired with a production company that that commissioner or commissioning team does have an established relationship with is actually really important yeah. because they are the sort of, in a, in a way, it's sort of, they're the, the safety net. They're, they're the people who will handhold you through the process, help you, hopefully get the best out of you. But I think, you know, I think we all talk a good game, but commissioners are tend to be relatively, to some degree, some more than others, risk-averse. And so yeah, part of what you're doing is sort of mitigating risk, and that involves putting you together with someone who is known and established. It's a lot of money. Each commission yeah. is a lot of money. So, And actually, it's not just our decision. It goes through finance. It goes through various people. You know, there's a lot of people who look at the books. Or you're covering off one risk so you can take another. I mean, exactly. there's sort of another way of exactly. thinking of it, isn't it? I mean, sometimes the, the riskiest thing to do is to half do it. You know, a lot of the time, when I've taken slightly loopy things to Jay Hunt, she's said, look, don't do it at that level. If you're going to do it, yeah, do it, do like, it. Do it at this level, yeah. right? You know, sort of up it, as it were. And we love co-pros at Sky. Right, thank you. We've got a question over here, and the gentleman there. Thank you. Hi. Um, I've been making programmes since, about 80, 86, and my first commission was from Channel 4 when Stephen Garrett was commissioning editor. So um, youth programming was my first in, Def 2 at BBC 2 and so forth. So as a white 61-year-old uh, male, um, <laughs> I did retire voluntarily from the TV factual industry and uh, at the age of 50 and come back, had a foray into feature film production and now back into hopefully specialist factual, whatever uh, that means. Um, I hope I'm still relevant. Um, I watch a hell of a lot of television and uh, I start my week, maybe the rest of you do here, by I circle every channel and I religiously uh, watch those programmes, even on catch-up and I do know how to use it. Um, my question is, as a uh, programme-making, the uh, gateway, and you're all very lucid, and I think I understand every nuance. It's the same but different. I think that, that mantra's uh, what I've used for 25 years, um, and it's a mirror to, uh, you know, a snapshot of where our culture should be a year hence or where it is now, and that virtually covers, I think, most areas of commissioning. But um, my point is, what is the 
route between your acquisitions uh, teams and yourselves? Because uh, I started as what people you know, generally did was uh, guerrilla filmmaking. Then I made alliances with uh, as independence became aggregated into you know, the brown envelope days in the early 90s. So I had to close my two-man company and then be a sort of wandering pirate joining other bigger vi uh, vessels. Um, so I'm back to uh, the, this broad entry into program making again, um, and it's through self-funding or going out there making the production first by any means necessary. And so in other words, I would come to you with a, a made program, uh, obviously, and the, uh, the thing is we've heard your bi-weekly or weekly or daily commissioning process and assessment. Um, the acquisition, are you joined up with your acquisition side and to what degree? Uh, well, hey, John, yeah. Okay, so there is an acquisitions team at four and that's one route. Uh, and you can just send them the finished program. I called Nick Lee, it's all um, there on the website. Mm -hmm. Um, I wouldn't assume that's the only route to go. I mean, some of our more successful programmes have, have sort of arrived half-made or even sort of fully made and then been tweaked. Um, we had a programme called The Stranger on the Bridge about a year and a half ago. Incredibly moving exploration, someone trying to find the man who'd saved him from um, killing himself, jumping off a Waterloo Bridge. Um, I can totally remember that it was a conversation in a pub. Someone um, brandished a sort of pulled a DVD out of their pocket. They hadn't made anything for broadcast TV before. Thrust it into David Glover's hand. He said, OK, I'll definitely watch this. And I thought, <laughs> you know, we'll see. Uh, but of course, <laughs> it happened, right? And um, it was about three quarters of a programme. Like, I think they, they felt they'd made the show. And we felt if you added a bit to it, you could make a, uh, a better hour. Um, so I, I, would, I would, I mean, it's quite nice getting things that are done because you have to, it's a nice leap of faith, isn't it? We haven't all got time to watch endless hour-long programmes, but um, I, I would try both routes to see which way it takes you. The one thing I'd say is it's just less likely to hit the mark um, once you've already made it. You know, we, the opportunity to shape it for the channel um, is that much less. And like John says, in that case, they felt, the channel felt they made 45, you know, 40 five minutes of the show rather than the whole show. Um, that's, that's the only thing. But again, we've got a commission, uh, an acquisitions team. It's run by Ben Newt um, in London. Um, and you can go to him or you can come to us. And we have a question uh, just there. There you go. Um, Thank you. Hiya. Um, thanks for the speech. Um, my name is Nikhil Katnot. I'm from Goldsmiths University. I'm currently studying film um, and screen documentary. And I was just wondering, um, in regards to students, like what kind of opportunities do you have? Do you con are you considering kind of like students, um, obviously for these kind of positions? And where do we find these um, kind of like information? Because you were saying, like for example, to drop an email, but where do we find these resources? Is it just your website, or do you know what I mean? Because a lot of it is kind of seems to be through word of mouth? Uh, Sky has a Sky Academy, so we take on 12 emerging artists or whatever every year, and that could be a filmmaker, um, and fund them and sponsor them. And yes, I'm sure for all of us, go into, uh, put in Google search the broadcaster's name and commissioning, and it will take you to the site. Yeah, and the, the, all the email addresses and everything are on that. I mean... We similarly, it, it depends on what kind of film you're talking about making. Uh, all the contact details and everything on the website, the briefs are on the website. Um, we run a £6 million three-year programme with the Arts Council that commissions 200 artist shorts every year, including 120 a year or so um, from sort of new filmmakers. So if that's the route you want to go down, I would try that as the Random Acts programme. Um, 
Otherwise, uh, we, have to, we sort of tend to ask that everyone approaches a fire production company just because it's the only way of managing the volume of uh, material that comes in. But um, hopefully the contact details and the briefs will be there. So if, it's, if, it's, if, you're, if you're thinking of making a, an art short, I would try the Random Acts program. If it's a more um, mainstream, broader, specialist factual program, I'd go via a production company. Okay. And we've got a question at the back, and then there's one at the front here. So we go to the back first. Hi, guys. Um, thanks for sharing with us. Um, so I think there's probably some of us that have got ideas or concepts that we think are perfect fits for certain channels. Um, for example, if you've, you might have something centered around Paralympic broadcasting, obviously you go to Channel 4 being the home of it. Um, and I wondered, I think the fear might be that if you've got, if you're sort of self-professed perfect fit for a channel, um, it, it, it sort of, it, it comes in with so many other ideas that are, are saying the same thing. And I just wondered if it's got to the point where you're, you could be put off by something that's self-professed perfect fit. And um, if, if that's the case, what, what about certain commissions cut through the ones that are just sort of standard, if that makes sense? I don't know why we're looking yeah. at you. Yeah, on, we're looking at me. Um, I, don't know if, I don't know if I'm going to answer this. Um, this is my perspective. I mean, at National Geographic, particularly in the London Hub, because we used to be NGCI, you know, the international branch of the channel, um, we get frequently pitched stuff which has a location in the Middle East, a location in Southern Africa, a location in Indonesia. Um, it feels like everybody thinks, oh, well, if we've got a multi-international location series, we'll send it to National Geographic International. Um, I'd say that's not necessarily true. Um, we're looking for fresh ideas as well and different ideas. Yes, we need to, um, as a global channel, find um, shows that are going to... Um, work well in Asia, work well in Latin America, and work well in Europe and Africa. Um, but more than that, we're looking for interesting things that feel a little bit different to everything else that we've got. Yes, there'll be stuff that speaks to our core you know, proposition in the same way um, you know, Channel 4 has a strong uh, uh, Paralympics and disability remit, etc., which I'm sure John can talk about, a little bit more about. But what we want, want is stuff that feels new and innovative and different while also addressing our commissioning needs, if you see what I mean. So it's, if you go right in the middle, <laughs> you know, you're going to be competing with a hell of a lot of other people, but if you try and find those new spaces, you've got a better chance, I'd say. I mean, um, I've, I've never not commissioned something because it's two-channel four, right? I, that's the, it's a good route, I would say, stick with it. Uh, the other thing is I am obviously put off by those proposals that uh, slip through that have accidentally got, like... Um, BBC or Sky or Nat Geo on the top of them. Um, uh, it's just, sorry, it's a sort of, you know, you feel second best. Um, uh, so I wouldn't worry about that, really, honestly. I would just sort of, I think the more distinctive uh, you can make it, the better. As for what stands out, it's, I mean, it's, 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 um, it's hard to, if I could summarise that, I'd probably be a much more successful commissioner, but um, <laughs> uh, I, do, quiet. I, I do think one of the challenges, though, if you're a, a programmer or an independent producer, is that you're partly led, yes, there's a commissioning website which gives you briefs, but you're partly led by what's on the television at the moment. And I would say, it, it, for most broadcasters, though it can sometimes take a while to turn a tank, that there's always a sort of evolution of what's on air already. So, so I think if, 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 if your question is, shall I pitch something which is very, very similar to what's on air at the moment, which I know your question isn't, but just to be binary about it, then I would say don't, because there will always be an internal conversation happening, which is, well, how do we move that on? Even if we're going to carry on working with the same talent or in the same subject area, how do you evolve it will be the internal question that's happening. And so you have to play a game that I think all commissioners are playing, which is sort of 
it's a game of chicken, isn't it? It's like, do we go again and sort of tweak it and evolve it, or do we do something completely different? And I think the ideas that always stand out, they don't always get, it's not always the smoothest commissioning process, but the ones that always stand out to me are the ones that feel like they understand the DNA of what the channels are doing, of what, of what the BBC is there to do, but evolves it and moves it on. And, and I would work on the assumption that if, it, that if it's a sort of mainstream, continuation of what the BBC already has on air. We'll have been pitched it four, five, six, especially in subject areas, four, five, six times already, which is why I think a lot of, a lot of us have spent a lot of time today talking about form as well as about content, because especially with sort of the, the sort of classic specialist factual content, the classic history and science content, it, it, lots of, you know, we all read the papers. We all know what the sort of latest science, you know, the, the, the top lines of the latest science of the latest historical revelation. So form is as important, how you will deliver it to an audience is as important to me as the journalism that underpins it. So it's true that you ba you've basically got most of the same information as us, I think, right? And, yep. you know, the model whereby the only thinking about what we're going to do happens on this platform and then you just sort of take the brief and meet it is a disaster. I I've been hiring in the last sort of um, few months and possibly the best thing about that process is having a bunch of people come into the room and say, well, my take on your state is... And you just think, oh, I don't ask that enough. So actually, genuinely, I'm sorry, this sounds, I'm now going to be contradictory. Um, what can I say? Uh, but it is, you know, I want, you know, as Tom says, the, the, the brief is useful for knowing what the mission of the channel is. Uh, but beyond that, we'd like, I'd like your analysis of where the gaps are, because I bet you'll see things that I don't. Well, thank you very much. Thanks to everyone for coming today. Thanks for your questions. Yes, sir, thank you.